0: Rabbi Stephen Warnick reflects on the recent overturning of Roe v. Wade with respect to halacha. Enjoy. This morning, I'm going to respond to last week's decision of the Supreme Court of the United States. It's decision that overturned, overturned Roe versus Wade. I'm going to explain a little bit about the Jewish law as it applies to this particular issue of abortion, and also touch upon some insight from this week's Torah reading as it relates to how we discuss and debate the matter. Now, why am I going to do this? Uh, for one, I read a commentary this week, I don't remember exactly where, but it, it pointed out that we in Canada, we're Americans. We may, not be, we may not be United States of Americans, but we're Americans. And certainly what happens south of the border influence us here in Canada, and quite frankly, it influences democracies and nations around the world. So to ignore an issue of this import... It uh, seems like we're doing ourselves a disservice in terms of our own Jewish values and morality. In addition, Judaism happens to have thousands of years of chuvot, of responsa on this particular issue, as well as pages and pages of philosophy and wisdom as it relates to it. Our tradition has something to say, therefore on the issue of abortion, and I feel that we're therefore obligated to speak up, though not everyone will necessarily agree. And so as my teacher and friend, Rabbi David Wolpe, said when he gave a sermon last week on this parsha at his synagogue, Sinai Temple in in, uh, in, um, Beverly Hills, I swear it is. Beverly Hills, California. Uh, there's a presumption of goodness that I bring in this discussion that I hope others will have as well. And that relates to the Parsha specifically in that Korach is considered the quintessential example of a machloket she'enu l'ashem of a dispute that was not for the sake of heaven. And pure keavot juxtaposes Korach to Hillel and Shammai, who are the paradigmatic example of a machloket that is l'shem shamayim, for the sake of heaven, a machloket, a dispute that seeks to add to and expand goodness in the world. So I bring this discussion with the knowledge that it's difficult and that there will be disagreement, but with the presumption of goodness of those that listen to it and those that will engage with me on it. It seems that, to begin, we have to start with what actually happened. What was it that SCOTUS, that the Supreme Court of the United States, actually did? Well, to quote Justice Alito, the Constitution makes no reference to abortion, and no such right is implicitly protected by any constitutional provision, including the one on which the defenders of Roe and Casey now chiefly rely, the Due Process Clause of the 14th Amendment. He continued that provision has been held to guarantee some rights that are not mentioned in the Constitution, but any such right must be deeply rooted in the nation's history and tradition and implicit in the concept of ordered liberty. And finally, it is time, therefore, he concludes, to heed the Constitution And returned the issue of abortion to the people's elected representatives. That last line is ultimately what the Supreme Court did. In overturning Roe versus Wade and also Casey, which was the precedent that followed it, what Justice Alito did, what the Supreme Court did, is they turned the issue of abortion back to the states. Essentially, He determined that there's no constitutional guarantee of abortion. And so therefore, it's up to the people to decide, through their state legislatures, whether or not abortion should be allowed or disallowed in individual states. That's what happened. Now, before I get to why I think that's problematic, certainly from the perspective of Jewish law, it's important, I think, to take a moment and refresh our memories of what exactly is halakha. What does our Jewish tradition have to say about the issue of abortion? There are elements of halakha, quite frankly, that are crystal clear, of which there is no dispute or discussion amongst all the halachic authorities, whether orthodox, Haredi even, or liberal, and there are other elements of halakha that are more nuanced. So let's start with what's crystal clear. What's clear from a perspective of halakha is that abortion is not murder. It's not murder to have an abortion. And that is explicitly stated in the Torah. In Exodus chapter 21 verses 22 to 25, we read of the incident of uh, of a case in which two or more parties are fighting. And one of them pushes a pregnant woman, and a miscarriage results as a result of that encounter. There's no other damage that ensues other than the miscarriage. So what's the Torah's remedy to this circumstance? The one responsible shall be fined according to the woman's husband may exact, and the payment is based on a reckoning. Right? So if two people fight, and in the course of that fight, a pregnant woman is pushed, she's hit, she's hurt, she's damaged, and she has a miscarriage as a result of that incident, the penalty for that is a fine. Now, in the halachic literature, that's due to a concept known as wounding. She is wounded. Now, there's some disagreement within the halachic literature as to who is it that is wounded. Is it the woman that is wounded, or is it the fetus that is wounded? But nevertheless, the miscarriage that results from that incident is not considered murder. For had it be considered murder, then the penalty of the Torah of life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, bruise for bruise, would have been applied. Had it been murder, then the death penalty for the Torah would have been applied in that case. And since it was a fine, we can learn from that explicitly that wounding is not murder, that a miscarriage that results from a fight, an abortion, more specifically, is not murder. Now, if we look at further rabbinic sources on this issue, we have even more support for the fact that a fetus is not considered a human life, the potential for human life, but not an independent human life. In the Talmud, well, let me even, before I get to that, in Mishnah Ohalot, which is before the Talmud, We have a very graphic example. If a woman is having trouble giving birth, they cut up the child in her womb and bring it forth womb by womb. I'm sorry, limb by limb. Because her life comes before the life of the fetus. That's the Mishnah. I'm not going to get into all the graphic detail of how they describe the abortion that happens. But here we see in the Mishnah... That the woman's life takes precedence over the potential life of the child of the fetus. That if she's having trouble giving birth, then the fetus is destroyed. And the Talmud, which comes 300 years after the Mishnah, the Talmud in Yevamot goes even further and says that until the 40th day, the um, the fetus. Is considered, or her pregnancy is considered, mere fluid. right? So the rabbis understood, they understood and made a distinction between a potential life of the fetus and the extant life, the existing life of the mother. Uh, and there's unanimity in our tradition that the life of the mother, therefore, always takes precedence over the life of the fetus until it emerges from the womb. And then even there, the rabbis have the discussion as to at what point, as it emerges from the womb, does that life of the child begin to take precedent even over the life of the mother in that it becomes its own existing life. And that, quite frankly, has to do when it takes its first breath. In Jewish tradition, we gain our soul, we become human beings when we take our first breath. And until the fetus breathes, till the fetus became, becomes an actual child by breathing, in our tradition, the existing life of the mother always takes precedence over the fetus. That's explicit in our tradition. What's more nuanced is what Rambam Maimonides adds in the 10th, 11th centuries. Maimonides is the Jewish philosopher and halachic authority who adds the notion, the category, of the health and anguish of the mother. That one could abort a fetus if it will have a detrimental impact on the health and anguish of the mother. Now, the health, the physical health, we can understand. We can get back to what's explicit within the Torah. What becomes more nuanced is, what do we mean when we say anguish of the mother? What constitutes the mental health of the mother? Could it simply be economic hardship? Or perhaps the mother's a child? Or in the more extreme cases of rape and incest? That becomes much more nuanced. And there are lots and lots and lots of debate and discussion within our tradition trying to define the anguish of the mother. But it exists. It exists. We know that in our tradition. What is clear from all the authorities even when they're discussing the nuanced elements of anguish of the mother, is that no one in Jewish tradition views abortion as casual birth control. Abortion in our tradition should not be used as casual birth control. Uh, And in fact, I can tell you from my now 25 years, 26 years in the rabbinate, and talking with my father, who has 50-plus years in the rabbinate, I know of no person that uh, approaches abortion casually. So it's not correct to say that Judaism permits abortion in all cases. It doesn't. We tend to support the pro-choice movement from a policy perspective, because we don't want to see accessibility to abortion limited if it is needed and if it would be required according to our tradition. Just take Alabama, for example. By turning abortion back to the states, you now have this care, this chaos of 26 states that are going to prohibit it, and 26 states that are going to permit it, and in the states that are going to prohibit it, you have all sorts of different prohibitions where you have chaos. Where in the state of Alabama, they just recently passed a law that even in the cases of rape and incest, abortion is not permitted. So from a Jewish perspective, what's wrong with the SCOTUS decision? Well, for one... As I explained, there's a fundamental difference between the way Jews and Christians, especially those Christians that are leading the evangelical pro life movement, and how we approach issues of the sanctity of life. The sanctity of the life of the mother takes precedence over the sanctity, the potential sanctity life of the fetus the well-being of the mother, even the emotional well-being, though there's dispute as to what constitutes that. But when there is agreement and an understanding that the emotional well-being of the mother, her mental health is important, abortion may be required, not even permitted, required in our tradition. So how we look at the sanctity of life is a fundamental difference that we as Jews have with decisions such as this. And as some are arguing... In the court system, and I don't think they're going to be successful. But there is a real concern about the separation of church and state with this issue being perhaps a violation of the First Amendment rights of Jews in the U.S. Secondly, it impacts, this decision impacts the way in which we value women and privacy in our tradition and access to health care. There's something, I think, fundamentally wrong with a legal decision that ignores the value of women. By saying these rights are not explicitly protected by the U.S. Constitution, the Due Process Clause, that they have to be grounded in history in order to merit the protection of the Constitution, well, how do we resolve the fact that in 1868, when the Due Process Clause was brought into the Constitution of the United States, women had no vote. Women had no voice, no say, in a matter, certainly as it relates to abortion, that most explicitly and directly impacts them. And even in halakha, in our Jewish tradition, until about 50 years ago, women had no voice. I think there's fundamentally something fundamentally wrong about ignoring the progress that we make of including women within our legal system, within our religious system, especially on those matters for which they are most deeply affected and previously had no say in whatsoever. Third, as Justice Rosie Abella, who recently retired a member of this congregation, wrote in the Globe and Mail, or was quoted, rather, in the Globe and Mail, said that this decision sets a dangerous precedent. As represented by state governments, she found that that notion of returning the issue to the states is deeply at odds with how constitutional rights are applied in Canada. The notion, she says... That a constitution applies interstitially in some states and not others is a bizarre concept to a Canadian. Quite frankly, it's a bizarre concept to a Jew. How can you have something that's going to apply in 26 states in one way and not in 26 states in another way, and then even in the 26 states where it's going to be prohibited, as I said earlier, you're going to have a whole range of different ways in which it gets applied, especially on an issue such as this. It seems counterintuitive and illogical. It sets a dangerous precedent. And if we were to be like some senators who met with these Supreme Court justices privately who assured them, oh, precedent is precedent, I'm not going to overturn it. Um, And we're going to take Alito and the Supreme Court of the U.S. at its word that this ruling is only narrowly defined to abortion. Well, you don't have to go very far to understand that that's really not true. Just look at the opinion written by Justice uh, Justice, uh, Thomas concurring on this matter in which he said quite explicitly that this reasoning should apply even beyond abortion. And we should look at same gender weddings, marriage, contraception. Uh, as Rosalie Obella said, I think this is a perfect decision for the 18th century. Louis Labelle. Louis also who served the Supreme Court of Canada from 2000 to 2014, uh, he said that the majority's approach to rights in history is respectfully and plainly wrong. What we call new rights developed through legal interpretation, he said in an interview. Those rights that we recognized in the past were new at some point in time. They came into being because courts acknowledged them, upheld them, and recognized them. In Canada, the Supreme Court has established that charter rights are a living tree, that they evolve with time and with interpretation. A living tree. As a Jewish rabbi, someone who makes psakdin, what I hear in living tree is etz chayim hi zikimba. That notion of a living tree, of an expansive interpretive tradition, is the bedrock of Jewish halachic process. That's how we attend to these matters. That's the Jewish halachic process. Now, we are at the beginning of what is inevitably going to be a decades-long struggle, discussion, debate, observation of what happens in the U.S. And even here, quite frankly, because if it can happen there, it can happen anywhere. And abortion is not specifically mentioned in the Canadian Charter of Rights, nor is it explicitly mentioned and permitted within Canada's criminal code which I find very fascinating that there is only one criminal code in Canada, and it's a federal code. It applies across all the provinces. I think that's a great system, by the way. But when we turn to Korach, we learn something about this issue and the way in which we should debate and discuss it. And also, I think, a commentary on how troublesome decisions such as this are uh, there's a wonderful midrash that says when Korach was debating with Moshe about his leadership, he, he brings the case, well, the, the mitzvah, the Torah says that for the talit to be kosher, the tzitzit have to have one thread of techelet, of blue, of, of, a, of, a, of a special kind of blue thread. So Korach says, well, what happens if I have an entire talit that's made of techelet? Do I need to still have tzitzit? To which Moses says, no, the mitzvah is tzitzit. Having a whole talidah t'chelet isn't sufficient. Korach says, well, if I have a house that's filled with Jewish books, do I need to put a mezuzah on the door that just has one piece of parchment in it? To which Moses says, no, the mitzvah is you have to have parchment. Korach's claims are disingenuous. He's misinterpreting the tradition, and he's losing sight of the tree, of the force for the tree, which seems to be what the Supreme Court is doing in this case as well. By turning it to the states, that might be true from a technical perspective of American legal law. It may be true from the technical perspective of, le- of American law. I'm not a lawyer, I don't know. But what it totally ignores is the issue of women and their bodies and their right to health care, and to determine their own reproductive rights. Let alone the issues of Jewish law that have to do with the preservation of the life of the mother over the life of the fetus. So what do we learn from Korach? We learn from Korach the difference between debate and dialogue. A debate is where I am so convinced of the rightness of my perspective that I'm trying to convince you of it. I don't necessarily... I'm not necessarily interested in what you have to say. Only to make my points. That's a dispute. L'shem shemayim, that's not for the sake of heaven. But is only for the sake of something else. That's what Korach did. By bringing... Examples... That were illogical and lost sight of the, of the primary element of the mitzvah, of the commandments. Whereas Hillel and Shammai are brought as the paradigmatic example of, disputa- of disputes that are L'shem Shammai because they're a dialogue. Why is it, according to tradition, we follow Hillel more than we follow Shammai? Because Hillel always quoted Shammai when he was making a ruling or in a, d- a dispute. He respected the other position. He might not have agreed with it, but he respected it. And he took it into consideration. And the goal of a dispute, L'Shem Shemaim, is not to say that I'm right and you're wrong, is to say, how can I learn from your perspective in order to be expansive in bringing goodness and holiness and mitzvah into the world? Halakha, seeks to expand Torah into the world, to expand one's rights, to expand one's holiness, not to narrow it. Yes, there are traditions within our, there are halachic authorities within our tradition that are more machmir, that seek to narrow. But if one were to survey the totality of the halachic process, one would see that the arc of halacha is towards mekil, towards leniency, towards inclusion, and not towards machmir. So by sending this issue to the states, that's a narrow perspective of law, and it ignores the other fundamental principles, and in so doing, restricts rights rather than expands them. And that's where we as Jews, from a halachic perspective, have an issue with this decision. Disputes that are not for the sake of heaven have three elements there's no goodwill. They pursue their own agendas and they approach their agendas with a sense of self-righteousness and arrogance in which they prevent any other opinions from being heard. Halakha, Jewish law, always preserves the rejected opinion and reflects that in disputes for the sake of heaven, there are truths on all sides. That does not mean that one needs to agree with things that others say. Truth emerges not just from theoretical premises, but from lived life, from lived life. As one colleague of mine, Rabbi Fred Klein, said, and with this I'll conclude, while we cannot always impact larger society, our own Jewish communities are diverse with visions and values which often seem unbridgeable. They often may be and will need to be and need to continue to pursue what we believe is true. Yet perhaps we can learn from Hillel and Shammai how to pursue our objectives honorably and for the sake of heaven. And with that, may we engage in this debate in the days, weeks, months, and years to come.